If you ever stand on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and look west to the Temple Mount, you'll see a walled up gate on the eastern wall. That is called the Beautiful Gate, also known as the Golden or Eastern Gate. This gate will be opened, according to the prophet Zechariah, when Jesus sets foot on the Mount and makes his way to the Temple Mount. Today, on this episode of our study in the Book of Acts, we come to a message titled, The Beautiful Gate. This is where the opening event we find in chapter 3 took place. So let's open our Bibles to that location and join Pastor Al Pittman. Well, it's good to be back with you from Israel, my wife and I, amen, are back here, amen. It was a great trip, and as all the trips are uh, magnificent, and God has something to show us on each trip, and uh, this was exciting. Uh, one of the memorable things is the baptism in the River Jordan, and the River Jordan is over flooding, it's flooding right now, I should say, and uh, the place we usually go to, we didn't go to, we went to this other place where we baptized people, and it was ice, ice cold. Ice, ice baby, amen? It was ice, ice cold. And yet we got out there, and uh, Pastor Shea and I, and, and the, God bless the folks who were baptized, they came out, and uh, we were, man, going in that cold, frigid water and coming up, but it was a wonderful experience, amen? And, uh, but good to be back with you today. Acts chapter 3, I've entitled this message, The Beautiful Gate. Amen. We're going to read, just dive right into the word here. We start at verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 6. So read along with me, please. Now, Peter and John went up to, together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they had laid, whom they laid rather daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful to ask alms, some financial donation, from those who entered the temple, who seen Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go through this uh, line upon line, precept upon precept. Uh, here a little, there a little. The Lord said, I will feed my people. And we're going to go through it in an expository fashion. But pray that God would bless you through his word today. But here in verses 1 to 6, they go up to the temple at the ninth hour. And what is the ninth hour? Well, at the temple in Jesus' day, in that day, uh, there were three times that people went up to the temple to pray. One was at the third hour, which was actually 9, 9 a.m. in the morning. The sixth hour was another time they could go up to pray, which was noon. And the ninth hour, uh, which was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, this was the ninth hour. It was the ninth hour when they would actually offer the evening sacrifice. There was a morning and evening sacrifice. An innocent lamb would be slain. Blood of the lamb would be uh, would be poured out. Um, and the sacrifices, of course, in the Old Testament all pointed to what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there in the temple at this time, at the ninth hour, they were sacrificing the, the evening sacrifices, cutting the throat. Hate to be so graphic, but cutting the throat of the, that innocent lamb as a sacrifice, an offering before the Lord. And it's interesting that Jesus Christ, when he breathed his last, died around the ninth hour at the time when they were offering the evening sacrifice in the temple. The Lamb of God, 
being offered for our sins on the cross. And so the ninth hour is an interesting hour. But here they are entering to the temple at this time on the, at the ninth hour in a place called the Gate Beautiful. Uh, what is the Gate Beautiful? It is the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and it leads right up to the temple. Uh, it's the same gate that Jesus entered into on Palm Sunday. And uh, it's located directly across from the Mount of Olives. We were just there last week. And uh, actually this time I had a chance to go up to the eastern gate. Uh, I've been there many times in Israel before. And, uh, but I was never able to go up to, right up to the wall to the eastern gate. And um, so we were able to go up to the eastern gate. Uh, who's that guy? Oh, anyway. <laughs> Um, there I am standing by the Eastern gate. There's the, the, the ancient gates. And, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it's also the gate I might add that the Bible says when Jesus comes back, Zechariah chapter 14, that he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. It was split in two going North and South. He will come and enter through that same gate, the Eastern gate. That's according to Zechariah chapter 14. And then, uh, of course, e- Ezekiel says he will enter that same gate. Ezekiel 43 Verses 1 to 5 says he will enter that same gate. What gate? The eastern gate. And why that gate? Because that gate was aligned with the temple. And so one of the things our our, um, uh, guide, (laughs) uh, what do you call him? I know Ezra, but what's he? Tour guide. Yeah, okay, there you go. All right. I don't know. I thought it was some sophisticated word I forgot, you know, like. Our tour guide told us, um, and I've heard this before, but that they know that where the, the golden dome is, the, the, the Muslim golden mosque or dome is not really a, a mosque, but it's, it's a dome. And, but where it's located is not where the temple was. Now, some people think, well, oh, this, you know, they built it where the, you know, right on the site where the temple was. No, the temple was actually about 20 feet uh, north of where the mosque or the uh, the golden dome is and uh, the reason we know that is because if you stand on the mount of olives they said in ancient times that you could look from the mount of olives directly into the eastern gate and directly into the temple and the and the golden dome sits over here <laughs> and so the temple is is actually the actual holy of holies the temple itself is actually 20 feet or so away from where the the golden dome is in other words whoever designed the golden dome missed it Amen. Uh, whoever put the month, when they put it there, they missed it. They put it in the wrong place. And uh, of course, there is a, at the Eastern Gate, I might add, there is a uh, Muslim graveyard uh, that is there in front of the Eastern Gate. And the reason they put the, the graveyard there, it was actually, um, the, the Eastern Gate was actually walled up um, in around 1540 or 1541 by order of uh, uh, Solomon, excuse me. The Magnificent, he was a sultan, a ruler in the Turkish Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Empire, and uh, he was a Muslim, and they walled up the uh, Eastern Gate because they understood the Christian prophecy, and also the Jews were looking for their Messiah as well. And so they walled it up, and uh, they put a Muslim graveyard in front of it that would keep uh, the Messiah from coming because the Jews, according to the law, could not touch anything dead. If you touch something dead, you're defiled. And so they thought, well, we'll fix the Messiah. He won't be able to come because we'll put a graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate. Amen. Good in theory, but it's not going to work. Amen. I'm just saying it's, it's not going to work. Jesus Christ is coming. Amen. And the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 13, God says, I work and who can reverse it? Amen. Praise his holy name. Give him praise and glory. Amen. 
So just a little history lesson on, on uh, the Eastern Gate. It's very significant in prophecy and is the gate our Lord is going to enter into when he comes back to the earth. But for this lame man, it was also, of course, called the beautiful gate that leads right into the temple. It was, it was anything but a beautiful gate for him. And uh, here he is there in this place. What it represented for him was hopelessness. And he was considered an outcast in society, someone who was expendable. He's been lame from the womb. Somebody that the society at that time, even at that time, would have considered to be worthless, not of much value. But the good news is that on this day, on this day, he would encounter the Lord of the outcasts. Do you know that your Lord is the Lord of the outcast? Micah chapter 4, verse 7. It's not on the screen, but Micah chapter 4, verse 7. Lord God says, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Thus saith the Lord. Hallelujah. God is the God of the outcast. Those who've been cast out by society, who've been rendered expendable. Not of much value. And yet Jesus came for us. Peter commanded his attention by saying to the man, look at us. Look at us. He had to gain his attention because despair had robbed him of all dignity. So much so that he couldn't look other people in the eye when he was asking for alms as they were passing by. He looked at Peter expecting something from Peter, some type of Big donation. And what does Peter do? He confronts his human crises with a spiritual remedy. And when you think about it, with every human crisis, loneliness, whatever it is, financial trouble, whatever it might be, with every human crisis, there is a spiritual component. There is a spiritual need. He commands this man. He commands his attention. Not so that the man might look to him, but that the man might see Jesus. And boy, is this, shouldn't that be the, the motivation for every ministry, every pastor that stands in a pulpit or whatever, to, or every teacher of the word of God, anyone running a ministry, I don't care if it's a coffee shop or ushers, greeters, whatever it is, that we're in that ministry so people might not see us, but they'll see Jesus. And there's a lot of people going to ministry to be seen by people. You know that. They like to be admired by people. They want to be praised by people. But Peter commands his attention not to look at me, look how wonderful I am. No, that he might see Jesus. And he addresses the man's human crisis, again, with a spiritual remedy. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. Peter opened the man's eyes to the fact that silver and gold cannot satisfy the soul. I know sometimes we we wonder, well, Lord, I'd like to try. (laughs) If I could win the lottery one time. You should let me win the lottery one time, Lord, I won't ask you ever again. (laughs) Amen. And, and sometimes we think, you know, silver and gold may be my, my solution. My remedy will really make me happy. But how many times we've read stories of those who are filthy rich, who are miserable, or who've taken their own lives. They have everything that we thought we needed. The silver and gold cannot satisfy your soul. Psalm 135, verses 15 to 18, the Bible says, the Lord God says that the idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of man, men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not. They have eyes, they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. 
Speaking about idols, the idols that we buy with our silver and gold or idols in that day that was fashioned out of silver and gold. Nor is there any breath in their mouth and those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Amen. Dead idols produce only produce dead people. Amen. Only God can satisfy the soul. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, for he satisfies the the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Aren't you glad about that? God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. So Peter's actions here really uh, remind us of another thing, and that is that God has equipped us to address the needs of our day. Did you know you were equipped by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit? If you've been born again, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, put your trust in him, you've surrendered your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, you are equipped to address the needs of our day. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the needs needs of our time, but we can address the needs of our day just as Peter did here. Many times we often lament over our personal limitations, our inadequacies, when it comes to addressing the needs of our times. And we wonder, oh, if I had a degree, I could do this or I could do that. Or if I had the money, I could do this or I could do that. If only, if only, if only. Lamenting over the things that we don't have. But 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 tells us that we have everything we need in Jesus Christ for life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we grow and abound in Christ, we become more effective for the kingdom of God. Peter wasn't lamenting the fact that he wasn't a financier. The man said, you know, was begging for money. He wasn't lamenting over the fact that he he wasn't a physician. The man was lame. But he gave the man what he had. What did he have? Jesus. And see, this is the answer we have for the world today. And sometimes we, you know, we we, 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 uh, will not reach out to other people, will not let God use us to touch other people's lives. We think, oh, you know, we need to get them to the professional. And that's wonderful. Thank God for the professional. But the reality is that you are equipped in Jesus Christ for life and godliness. Amen. And if you don't have anything else to give people, you can always give them Jesus. Amen. Give him praise and glory. Amen. Thank God. I thought of this. It came to my mind last service. I'd forgotten all about it. But many, many years ago, I was driving home. My wife and I, I think my wife was with me. And and we were falling. It was late at night. And this car in front of us just all of a sudden veered off to the side and hit a light pole. And I got out and ran over to the guy. He was bleeding from his nose and his ears. He was a young man. Very young. And I tried to talk to him and I couldn't. I said, all I have now is to give him Jesus. I don't have anything else to give him. I'm not a physician. I'm not, the, you know, EMTs or anything, but I gave him Jesus. I prayed over him and he died. So, but in, even in that, even in a situation like a hopeless situation, the last few seconds of this man's life, I had something to give him, you know, and I couldn't bandage his wounds or anything. The EMTs came and they started working on him and stuff, but he was, he was gone. I remember his sister contacting me later and wanted, me, wanted to know if there was any last words yet. He was a young man going to school. He just fell asleep at the wheels, what happened. We can give the world Jesus. No situation is so hopeless that you, cannot, you have nothing to give. Well, Pastor, I wish I could give something to do. Give us Jesus. Give the world Jesus. That's what they desperately need. And this is what Peter is doing here within our text. In verses 7 to 11... He says, rise up and walk. And in verse seven, he says, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Immediately, his feet 
and ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up, stood and walking and, and walked rather and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms, begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Man, that's exactly what happened in your life. Salvation. Many of you. Amen. You were that person that was you were another person that had another lifestyle. And then when you came to know Jesus and walking and leaping, praising God, people are like, wait a minute, let me double check. Is that him? You know, was that her? I've heard of some stories here and there of people who attend the fellowship here or bump into somebody they knew out in the world. When, when did you start going here? You know, it's like they're shocked, you know. I always say we're, always, we're all going to be shocked about who's in heaven, amen? And we're going to be shocked about who isn't. And then everybody's going to be shocked because you're there. <laughs> what, 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 you're here? Let me check the door, the, the, the title on the door. Is it heaven or hell? I don't know. If, I thought, But they knew the man begging for alms. They, we know this guy. Is that him? Yeah, that's, that's the guy. It's like the same guy. And now he's changed, transformed by the power of Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. So the, verse, the Bible tells us here in verse 11, it goes on. It says, now, at the lame, now as the lame man was, uh, who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's greatly amazed. Amen. Solomon's porch was an add-on to the temple, possibly by Herod the Great. Uh, the first temple, Solomon's temple, did not have a Solomon's porch. The second temple that was built after the 70-year captivity in Babylon uh, was, was a nice structure, but it wasn't that fancy. Surely wasn't what Solomon's temple looked like. It wasn't that magnificent. But when Herod wanted to endear the uh, Jewish people to himself, uh, he thought, well, I'll, I'll refurbish the old temple. And he did. He did a fantastic job. And so the temple in Jesus' day was actually known as Herod's temple because he had refurbished uh, the, the temple there. But when he refurbished it, he added this Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was a roof colonnade portico uh, that was attached to the east side of the uh, uh, temple. Um, it was on the, on the, on the east side and uh, Jesus actually went there in John chapter 10, verse 23. If you want to go back and check that John 10, 23, but here we see what I love here in verses seven to 11 from seven to 11. I, I see here really a picture of discipleship, what discipleship should look like. And it's three things I'm going to give to you quickly. Uh, number one is that Peter t- took the man by his right hand. The right hand is the hand of, of favor. You know that in scripture, many of you know that. But he took him by his right hand and he lifted him up. He, gave, he lifted him up. He didn't give him a, uh, lifted him up and helped him, I should say. He gave him a hand up, not a hand out. Amen. And he lifted him up, gave him his right hand, lifted him up by his right hand. The second, that's, that's a part of discipleship. You know, reaching out to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing is that he entered the temple with them. The man entered the temple with some help, with some assistance. And uh, the, the fourth thing here, or the third thing, I should say, I'm going you're getting way ahead of don't even have a fourth thing. I'm just making stuff up. Uh, the, third thing, <laughs> the third thing here is that the man held on to them in verse 11. 
He came into the temple and he held on to them. So it's a picture of discipleship. Handed, extended his hand to them, to him. Uh, you know, he entered, helped them to enter into the temple. And then he held on to them when he was in the temple. What does that all have to do with discipleship? Well, far too often, uh, the church has been guilty of dropping babies. People who come to Jesus Christ, they're brand new believers. And we think, oh, well, after the altar call, we're done. No, that's when it begins. Jesus said, make disciples. Amen. We have to be intentional about discipleship. Oh, that's for the church to do that. You got a staff that does that. No, every believer here is to disciple another person. Amen. We're to disciple one another. We're to be to care. It's about caring about each other. Amen. Give God praise and glory. Amen. It's discipleship. Go out and make disciples of all ethnos, all ethnicities, all people of the earth. And so we, it takes time to be a disciple, to, to care about other people. But too often in the church, like I said, we are guilty of dropping babies, you know, right after they're born. And, you know, nobody would do that with a baby. You know, we've just had a brand new uh, grandson born, Zakai, And um, he, you know, it'd be foolish for me to go over there and expect him to be driving and working and got a job by now. You know, uh, he's only been here a couple of weeks or whatever. So, you know, uh, but we just expect him to be doing all that, figuring it out on his own. No, you have to nurse the baby, you have to care for them, bring them along. It's the same thing with discipleship. There's somebody that God has placed in your life that you can reach a hand out to. There's somebody that God has placed into your, in your life that you can assist in finding their way into the church. You know, I, I keep that in mind. Everybody's not churched. I've been around the church for a long time. Everybody's not church, you know, don't know how to act. I mean, so you have to teach people. You can't just have people coming in and act in any old kind of way. Amen. But you have to teach people. That's a part of, of discipleship, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm getting way off here, but I, but sometimes I, I, I tell people, I say, if people, and people know how to act reverent, you know, they know how to act reverent because I've been to the movies. Amen. <laughs> when you go to the movies, people act reverent, don't they? If a baby's crying, they get up and take the baby out. Cause people pay their money to see the movie, right? And yet people come into church and want to act irreverent and act rude. And you have to, you have to address that sometimes. Yes. <laughs> Amen. You, you have to. We should bear with those who are weak and young who are coming up in the Lord. They need a hand extended to them. They need somebody to help them into the church. They need someone to stand with them when they're in the church. It's discipleship. The Bible says in Romans 15, 1, that we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves, not to take vengeance out on them, not to slap them upside the head when they make a mistake, not to please yourself. That word scruples in the original Greek, uh, it means infirmities or error arising from weakness of mind. Weakness of mind in trying to understand and comprehend the things of God. We don't go, man, you, you know, you haven't gotten this yet or whatever, you know, uh, you don't beat up on them. But that's, that's scruples, weakness of mind in trying to understand of uh, God's truth, but it is not, I might add, rebellion. It is not irreverence. You know, let people come on in and just be as irreverent and rebellious as they want to be. No, that's not. We are not to accommodate irreverence in the assembly of God's people. Amen. But we should always bear, and so that means to support those who are weak, who are seeking to understand. Well, let's move on here. Verse 12 to 16. It says, so when Peter saw it, 
He's looking at the situation. He's, he's got a, an opportunity being set right here before him. All these people are gathering. And, people, and when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? And of course, you know, he's speaking to a primarily Jewish crowd because he's at the temple. He says, or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but he caved to the, to the crowd. But you denied the Holy, the, the, the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead and which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. You guys know this guy? You know? It's not a, you know, an imitation or somebody else that looks like him. This is the person. You know him. And yes, the faith which comes through him that is through Jesus, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Amen. So Peter seizes the opportunity here. He carpe diem, he seizes the day to preach the gospel. And I noticed something here about Peter that he doesn't take credit for this miracle. Somebody else would have, you know, had this miracle and the crowd would have been gathering. First thing they want to do is take an offering, you know, or start a ministry, a healing ministry, you know. And going around, you know, well, yeah, and the attention is drawn to them and, and all of that. That it's their power, the power they have in them and all of this. And, and it's by their strength, their power, their secret formula or whatever, this man was made well. But Peter didn't, he didn't make a, he didn't market this thing. He said, listen, this thing didn't happen because we're so godly. We did anything to make this thing happen. This was totally of God. And what he's talking about here is basically what he's saying, you know, something we all need to remember is that we cannot contribute anything to the effectiveness of the of God working through our lives. We cannot contribute anything. Oh, you're growing the church. You can't grow the church. God adds daily such as should be saved. Amen. God grows the church. It's not in my power or marketing and our churches to get into marketing and all this. There's nothing wrong in, in being smart about how you advertise and all that. But the reality is that some water, some plant, Paul said, but only God gives the increase. It is by his power. Amen. So it's not because, oh, we're so good, such good people that God grows the church. No, it's by his sovereign power. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, verse 7, I'll get it right. He says here, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Amen. The excellence of the power, the excellence of the power, God uses crackpots like Pastor Al Pittman. I'm just a vessel. I'm a vessel of clay, a crack pot. Believe me, amen? Go ask my wife. And you know what? But he uses vessels that are inadequate and puts his glory in them so that when God does something magnificent, nobody can get the glory but God, amen? And so don't look at yourself and go, well, there's no way God can use me. Oh, look at this. I've got this flaw and that flaw. It doesn't matter. It's not about you. It's about the power of God that is within you, Amen? So Peter here, he takes, seizes the opportunity to preach the word. 
And he's clearly speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, obviously, because he's at the temple. And he uses the phrase, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He's speaking to them. In other words, he's saying, he's kind of putting them on the spot, you know. And he's basically saying, you who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of, and, and, you know, the God, and the God, and who know the God of our fathers, uh, you know, you guys should have known better than to kill the Messiah. He's calling them out. You kill the holy and just one. Evidence, when he says holy and just, is evidence of Christ's deity. Holy and just. You killed the prince of life. You exchanged this life for a murderer and a thief, a man by the name of Barabbas, we know according to the Gospels. In John chapter 18, verse 40, at the trial of Jesus, the people were offered Jesus, a choice between Jesus or Barabbas. Now, why is that? Well, John tells us that there was a tradition among the Jews that around Passover, uh, they would release a prisoner from prison. And so Pilate was trying to get Jesus off the hook. And he said, you know, it's part of your tradition to release a prisoner to you. Who do you want? You want Jesus or Barabbas? And they said, not this man. Speaking of Jesus, give us Barabbas. They rejected Christ. Rejected the prince of life for a thief and a robber because that's exactly who Barabbas was. We see people even doing that to this day. Rejecting Jesus for the one who came to kill and to steal and to destroy. Now in Jerusalem, when we were there, not boasting, just hopefully whetting your appetite so you can maybe go with us next time. But it was nearly neat because we were able to stand. You, and if you go with us, we usually go to this place where you stand on a part of the courtyard of the praetorium. The original praetorium courtyard. What's the praetorium? It was a place right off to the side of the temple. Not, not in the temple, but, but in the bearings, right? The west, the west northwest side of the, the uh, temple mount where the Romans would have guards. And they stationed them there because the Jews would get pretty rowdy around Passover. And so it was a place for the, the uh, Roman guards, but it's also a place where Herod had his Jerusalem residence. I mean, not Herod, but Pilate had his Jerusalem residence. And we were able to go down below in this building because a lot of the, the roads and things in Jesus' time were yet to dig down because, uh, you know, over time, people built on top of the, uh, the original uh, buildings that were there or whatever. And so you have to go down and underneath, underground, you see a part of the, Praetor, the Praetorian court, Courtyard. We stood on that, on, on uh, that which has been excavated. Not all of it, but a portion of it. And it was really surreal to, to think that we're standing where Jesus probably stood. We're standing in the courtyard where they, Jesus heard them say, not this man, but Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And it was this amazing an amazing experience. It always is. I've been there many times, but it's always an amazing experience. At that place, Jesus was scourged by Pilate. Pilate had Jesus scourged according to, according, scourged according to John 19. He was beaten. And after which he came out again to the crowd and said, behold, the man, the beaten up Jesus. To which the people responded even more vehemently, crucify him. Crucify him. And I thought, wow, 
They wouldn't even settle because of their bloodlust for beating up Jesus. They wanted him dead. And I thought, you know, we hear, still hear them crying, crucify him today. The world doesn't want a beaten up Jesus. They want him dead, gone for good, out of our lives, out of our politics, out of our schools, out of our society. We want Jesus dead. Crucify him. Crucify him. And before we're so quick to blame them, our voices were among those voices as well. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen. Yet despite mankind's efforts to kill the son or the prince of life, the son of God, Peter says, hey, God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. I got another set of picture I want to show you too. And it is a picture of the sarcophagus of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the, the ruler who tried to kill Jesus when he was born, remember? That's a stone box. They said contains his bones or contained his bones. If they took him out, I don't know. But that's his coffin. It's, it's, it's a beautiful piece of artwork, just, uh, just but stone. That's the actual, that's his sarcophagus right there. And then there's an ossuary, ossuary that I want to show you. That is ossuary of uh, the high priest Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? Well, Herod the Great tried to kill him at birth. Caiaphas tried to kill him at the end of his life because he's the one who turned Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. And there's a box containing his bones <laughs> right there. And uh, you say, well, why are you pointing this out to me? Well, because when we went to the garden tomb, it was empty. And the people that tried to kill him are dead. Amen. Now, in this, in this museum, and it's not a secular museum, they're not trying to prove Jesus Christ is Lord or anything. They're just showing you artifacts, and artifacts are preaching the gospel, and they don't even know it. Those who tried to kill his, take, destroy his life from the beginning and at the very end, their bones are there, and the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Amen. You give him praise and glory. Amen. Sometimes people are looking right at the gospel, and they still can't see it. It's a memorial, you think about it, at this museum, a memorial to Christ's victory over the grave and over his enemies. In verses 17 and 18, as we continue through the text, he says, yet when, and he, Peter continues with his message indicting the, the Jewish, his Jewish audience, as he says, you now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Christ has fulfilled these things. He's bringing them back to scripture. I love that. He's not saying this is my opinion or whatever. He's taking them right to scripture in regards to these things. He indicts them for their ignorance. And why does he do that? Because they were looking for a different Messiah, not the Messiah of scripture. Just like a lot of people today are looking for a different Jesus. They come to church for a different Jesus. Not the Jesus of scripture, but one made up in their own mind. In the Jewish mind back then and even today with many religious Jews, the Messiah they're looking for is not a suffering Messiah. The Messiah they're looking for is a, actually a human figure, a human leader. 
a great leader in the uh, spirit of King David. They're looking for a great leader, a human leader. And which really, you think about it, opens the door wide open for the Antichrist to come on the scene and to deceive a lot of people. So this is, this is the idea, even to this day, they, they were <laughs> really lost sight of what the Messiah would do when he comes. Back then, they lost, and have lost sight even today. So they don't believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah because they don't say, say well, he didn't fulfill scripture. And the reason they say that is because he, he was crucified. But they failed to understand the fullness of scripture. And Peter says here, Jesus fulfilled scripture and that he came to suffer, amen, for our sins. But they're, again, they're not looking for a suffering Messiah. They're looking for somebody like King David. Even his, his disciples thought this way. Uh, uh, James and John, the two son, the sons of Zebedee, you know, uh, they came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you know, when you, when you get into your kingdom, because I got to kind of do it like this, because they were kind of like on the, they were kind of like doing it behind everybody's back. Hey, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, you know what I'm saying? Can I sit on the right side and my brother sit on the left side, you know, man? We want a front row seat. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They said, yeah, baby, you know, because they were looking for all the good stuff. You're going to be, you're going to be established the kingdom, Israel's form of glory. You're going to overthrow the Roman government. And it's going to be all good, right? Yeah, I want to sit on your own front row seat to this. And Jesus said, surely you will drink the cup. But it wasn't the cup they were looking for because they were both martyred. Amen. But they were looking for a King David. But they, didn't, they were ignorant of the scripture. But the scripture said that the Messiah would come and he would suffer for our sins. And so when Jesus was arrested and he was crucified, guess what the disciples did? They fled. That's not the Messiah we were looking for. But they failed to understand the scripture. Now Peter understands it now here after the resurrection. He had to suffer for our sins. It was essential, an essential aspect of our atonement. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, a lot of people use that in the context of, you know, healing. Like God healed me by his stripes. I'm healed. I'm healed, you know. And yes, God heals. I'm not making light of that. He heals. He's done Miraculous healings, but sometimes there isn't healing. And that's a whole nother discussion I want to get into. But here's the point that I'm trying to make is that there in, in Isaiah chapter 53, the context, always read scripture in context. The context is not healing, physical healing. The context is salvation. By his stripes, by his wounds, by his beating, by his scourging, by him being nailed on the cross, we have been healed, amen, from our sins. That's the context. When Jesus started his ministry in Luke chapter four, you remember I sent over a video introducing our speaker last week who did a great job, Gino Geraci. And uh, but I sent you a video and I was uh, introducing him from Nazareth. Remember in Luke chapter four, Jesus went to Nazareth. It was his hometown. You know, homies are going to accept him, right? No. Prophets without honor in his own hometown. He goes to the synagogue and he reads Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. And he reads it as a prophecy about the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He came to bring good tidings, good news and all. It's about the Messiah. And when they heard him read that, he said, and he closed the book, I mean, the scroll, and he said, today this prophecy is fulfilled within the hearing of your ears. Whoa, you're calling yourself the Messiah. And they tried to throw him off a precipice, a cliff. We were at that spot where many believe maybe they were the spot they were trying to throw Jesus off. And it was, a, it was just a cliff, a precipice. But the Bible says that they, did, they were going to push him off and Jesus, all of a sudden, Time stopped and Jesus walked through the crowd and no one touched him because it wasn't his time. Amen. So he reads Isaiah chapter 61 verses one and two, but he doesn't read all of verse two. Because the second half of verse two reads this way. Not only did he come to proclaim the day of the, uh, the, the, the day of the salvation of the Lord, but the second part of verse two in Isaiah 61 says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Why didn't he read that? Because he was coming in his first advent as a sacrificial lamb. Amen. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. When he comes in his second advent, watch out. He's coming as a lion and he's going to strike the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Amen. So he came as a lamb the first time. And this is what Peter is saying. You know what scripture says that he must fulfill. He came to be a suffering savior. But the second time he comes, the second half of verse two of Isaiah chapter 61, he's going to come judging the nations with a rod of iron. Amen. So he's really rebuking them for being ignorant of the scriptures and not understanding that Messiah had to come and suffer for our sins to make atonement for us. For us. In verses 19 and 21, he says, therefore, here's the solution, repent. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Amen. You can have times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord or you can have the the impending judgment and fear in the presence of the Lord. God sent his son not to judge the world. Jesus said, I came into the world not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved, might have life through him. He sent his son, he sent his son uh, that we might repent. Here's the solution, repent, you guys. Be converted, converted, the Greek word epistrepho. And it means to love, love and obedience to God. To be born again is to no longer be estranged from God, but to be ushered into a loving relationship with God. It's not religion, it's a relationship. And we can have a loving relationship with God because we are freed from condemnation. Why? Because our sins, all of our sins, past, present, future sins have been blotted out through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise it. Oh, somebody ought to be praising God. Hallelujah. Thank God. That phrase blotted out literally means obliterated, wiped out, expunged from the records. Amen. They're gone. They'll never be remembered again. Only then can we have a time of refreshing for our souls. In verses 22 to 24, here he, in verse 20, I should start at verse 21, I guess. He says uh, in verse 20, and 
that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached uh, to, to you before, whom heaven must receive. So Christ is ascended into heaven. Heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The fulfillment of prophecy. One of those prophecies fulfilled uh, not too long ago, you know, uh, May 14th, 1948, the rebirth of Israel. All that God has prophesied through the prophets is going to be fulfilled. And there's not any, a whole lot of prophecies. And actually, I don't know of any that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ comes back. So we could, we could be gone at any moment. You know that? Amen. And when everything's fulfilled, when the Father's time, the Father says, right, he's going to come back. Amen. And see where I left off here. And uh, when the heavens must receive. Okay. Um, in verse 22, let's go to verse 22. He says, for Moses, he invokes here Moses, or, or he, he points out Moses' testimony about the Messiah, about Christ. And then also he talks about Abraham's promise and also the, the words of Samuel and the prophets, all validating uh, Christ and, and uh, speaking about Jesus Christ, how he would suffer uh, for our sins. And um, Moses said, he said, for Moses... Uh, truly said to the fathers, the Lord, your God will raise up from you. That is from your people, a uh, from you, your people, a prophet like me, like Moses from your brethren. You know, Moses delivered the people from Egypt. Jesus delivers us from sin. Like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. This is my beloved son. Jesus said at Christ's baptism, hear him. Verse 23, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And then he says, yes, all the prophets from Samuel and those who who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. What days? The days of Christ, the first advent of Christ. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made, which our fathers saying uh, with our fathers saying to Abraham and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where do you say that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How are all the families of the earth blessed through faith in Jesus Christ as we put our faith in Christ? And then he goes on here to to say, um, In verse 26, to you first, that is to the Jews, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Well, Peter is telling him, look, the Lord came to you first. Of course, John reminds us that he went to his own, but his own received him not. But he came to you first. Why? Not because you're better than anybody else, but because of God's promise to Abraham. So Christ came to you first. And then, of course, Paul tells us in Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes everyone. For the Jews first and also for the Greek or that is for the Gentiles. God's word and salvation is for all. But Christ went to the Jews first because of his God's promise to Abraham uh, to proclaim the good news his own did not receive him, but the many Jews, many Messianic churches are in Israel even to this day 
people, Jewish congregation that believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. So they're, they're coming to Christ. Amen. In a mighty way, even Ethiopian Jews are coming to Christ and, and we support one of those churches over there now and they're coming to Jesus Christ. Amen. By the thousands. So we thank God. Amen. Well, what's the application of our text as I wrap it up here? Got to let you go home. Amen. Can't keep you all day. Um, but here's, here's a couple of uh, thoughts before you leave. Application. Number one, uh, I can say this the simplest way. It's not on the screen, but this week, try to slow down. Amen. That's a miracle, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I got stuff to do. Um, yeah, I do too. But when I say try to slow down, I don't mean to, you know, stop working and don't go to work or whatever. My pastor told me to slow down. I ain't coming in today. No, he didn't. Don't be throwing me under the bus. Amen. But take time like Peter and John going to the temple. You know, sometimes we're so busy being religious that we miss what God sees. Amen. I can't I can't talk to that person because they have a certain lifestyle I don't agree with. Or certain politics I don't agree with. Or they're the wrong color. Or whatever. You know, take, slow down and listen. Because God will speak to you. See, what, what Peter did that day was a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. It, it was not like, oh, 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 that's how you heal people. Oh, okay. You know, you know uh, uh, Simon the sorcerer made that mistake. He tried to buy the power of God. Amen. And Peter rebuked him. And, you know, rebuked him harshly. And, uh, you know, that you would dare think that you could buy and purchase the power of God. Some people think they can purchase the power of God. Just send him 1995 and we'll give you the secrets to, you know, really? So we can purchase the power of God now? Is that how it works? No, the power of God is in you. And God will reveal that through you as you slow down this week and acknowledge those people that many times get overlooked. Take a moment to make eye contact with the person serving your food. Take a moment to look somebody in the eye when they give you back your change and say, thank you or God bless you. Or how can I pray for you? We've done that in restaurants. We'll ask the waitress or waiter. And I know it's not a political correct statement. And I don't care. I'm too old to care anymore. Um, But uh, the wait person. (laughs) Come and, uh, you know, we'll we'll just ask them, how can we pray for you? We've never, I haven't had anybody ever say, I don't need any prayer. Most people are like, well, you know, it may be frivolous. It may be, some of us really serious. You never know the person serving your food may be like this lame man at the gate. Beautiful. Let's slow down. If, if you're too, you know, my wife's always telling me to slow down. And she's right. If you're too busy to care, you're too busy. Amen. The second thing is this, and that is, you can rise up and walk. In the name of Jesus, you can rise up and walk. No matter what you may be facing this week, no matter what your gate might look like, so to speak, if Jesus is there, you can, Jesus is there, you can rise up and walk. Because it's not the gate. It wasn't the gate beautiful because it was such the most beautiful gate in the world. It was beautiful because of the presence of the Lord. That's what makes you beautiful. That's what makes me beautiful. That makes us beautiful. The church beautiful is the presence of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Psalm 96, verse 6, it says, Honor and majesty are before him, that is before our God. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The sanctuary is his presence. 
If you want where you're at in your life, your gate to be made beautiful, welcome in the presence of the Lord. You've been trying to figure it out on your own and get it done in your own strength. Stop. Say, God, I need you more than I need the next breath I breathe. I need you. There's beauty in his sanctuary. He can make whatever seems to be ugly, beautiful. By virtue of his presence alone. That's why he's given us communion. You know, communion is another way of the Lord saying, as Peter said to this, this uh, lame man at the gate. It's another way of the Lord saying to us every week, every time, every month that we celebrate communion, God's saying, look at me. Remember, Peter gained his attention and said, look at us. Had to grab his attention. Sometimes we come to church, our heads down. We can't look anybody in the eye. We're like the lame man. We're just there for alms, what we can get. Amen. But communion is there where the Lord says to us, look at me. You lift your head up and go, you know. Why did he say that? Remember me. Remember? Why did he say remember me? So that we'd be encouraged, so that we could go on. So we can know we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Don't look at your failures. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at other people. The worst thing you can do is compare yourself to somebody else. He said, look at me. Amen. Remember me. Every time you partake, remember me. It's like just another way of him saying, look at me. Amen. So that we can live as victors rather than victims. In conclusion, there is beauty at the gate. If only we will look up and receive it. Those are terrific words of comfort from Pastor Al Pittman, reminding us that we have a choice to either be victim or victor. And whether we look at Jesus will determine the path we take. The Beautiful Gate has been our topic today as we listen to the pulpit teachings from Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs. We'll pick up right here next time as we move into Acts chapter 4 for a message titled, The Defiant Ones. I hope you'll plan to join us each week for this verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts. If you missed some of the messages from the first or second chapter, catch up by clicking in at cwccs.org. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. This program is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.